best friends, that their souls would be knit together in love with one another and with the Lord, and God really answered our prayers and then some. A fun postscript to the naming of our twins was when they were about a year old, uh, my wife needed a break badly, and we dropped them off at her parents and went to Florida on vacation. Um, we decided that we would surprise one of my youth group kids who was a freshman at the Florida Bible College in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, if you knew this woman, she is a party waiting to happen. I mean, she is just fun and so excitable. And when she saw us, she ran down the steps. She gave us a big hug, and she said, Dave and Ann, I can't believe you're here. How are you? How are things at the church? How are David and Goliath? <laughs> she knew they were Old Testament guys, but got her stories a little bit confused. Well, the passage I'm about to read you uh, takes place... 10 to 15 years after the earlier passage that Sloan read, King Saul and Prince Jonathan have fallen in battle to the Philistines, and David has been crowned king by acclamation. That's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Listen, for this is God's word to us this morning. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, Lodabar was Canaanite country. It was about as far away from Jerusalem as you could get. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, if I say that correctly this whole sermon, it'll be a great thing. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, and your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons. He was more macho than Tim. And 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, 
so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Some of the leaders of the emerging church movement have said that Christian pastors shouldn't preach from the Old Testament because it's too negative. I could not disagree more. The Old Testament is the Word of God, and it was the only Bible that Jesus and Paul had. The New Testament is largely a Christological commentary on the Old Testament. And the Old Testament points to the one who would say, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but to fulfill them, the son of David, even Jesus Christ. I believe that this story of David and Mephibosheth is a picture to us of our relationship with Christ. Now, in order to understand this story fully, it's helpful to understand some of the story behind the story. For example, I do not believe that Jonathan named his son Mephibosheth. Why do I say that? Well, it was common in the time of David, in the time of Christ even, to rename people based on a dominant characteristic. We still do that today. Very few people call him Eldrick Woods or Urban Johnson, but it's Tiger and Magic. And in the Old Testament, we see that Jacob, the supplanter, wrestles with an angel, and he becomes Israel, the one who strives with God. In the New Testament, we see Simon, he gives the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he becomes Peter, the rock. Well, it, not just, it didn't just happen in positive ways. Jesus is walking down the road toward Jerusalem. And a blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, of course, has mercy on him and heals him. But this blind man's name is Bartimaeus. In Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, Bartimaeus means son of filth. I don't think that's what his mother named him. Can you hear it? Son of filth, time to come for lunch. It was a cruel name given because as a blind person, he couldn't do all the hygienic washings that the Jews demanded. Well, the same thing was true of Mephibosheth. When Jonathan was killed, he was five years old. And his nurse grabbed him, probably put him on her back, and ran into hiding. She wanted to escape the Philistines and possibly the next king. As she was running, he fell and he broke his feet and probably his legs. 
There were no orthopedic surgeons in 1000 BC, and so he became lame. And he was given the name Cursed of Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god of nature. Either his nurse or some other Canaanite gave him that harsh nickname. Have you ever experienced that kind of put down, that kind of curse? One of my best friends is a man named Hollis Half, and he is a wonderful preacher. If you were to hear Hollis preach, one of the things you would think is he has a great preacher's voice. I wish I had a great preacher voice like he does. But Hollis, before he was ordained, went to seminary, was an elder in my church, and we were sitting together in worship. His wife, Karen, was singing. She has a wonderful voice. But I noticed during the hymns that Hollis was singing really softly. I could tell he had a good voice, but he was really singing softly. And so after the service, I said, Hollis, have you ever thought about singing a duet with Karen? You have a nice voice. He said, you got to be kidding. When I was in sixth grade, my voice was changing, and my music teacher said, half, if you can't sing, don't. That curse, 20 years later, was still impacting him. I've talked to people whose parent or some other authority figure said to them, you know what, you'll never amount to anything. And that wound was depressing. In some cases, it caused great depression. In others, it caused motivation. And in many people, both depression and motivation. Our young people struggle with it. When I was a youth pastor, I read a book, Queen Bees and Wannabes. And the thesis of the book written by a psychologist was that in the culture of young women, there are certain queen bees who are at the top of the pecking order. Everybody wants to be their friend, and what they say is all important. They, the writer interviewed one of those queen bees, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, when boys fight, they shake hands and become friends. But when we're mad at a girl, we talk behind her back, call her fat, and give her an eating disorder. Today, it's not just talking behind your back, it's cyberbullying that kids have to deal with. David reversed the curse that was given to Mephibosheth. And Jesus reverses our curses. In him, we discover who we truly are. But there's a greater curse that we need to deal with. Again, the story behind the story here, if you were to see this story from Scripture filmed, when Mephibosheth came into the presence of David, he would be trembling with fear. He literally falls on his face. Why? Back in those days, in fact, up until recently, there were no democratic elections. There was no peaceful transition of power. When a king came into power, it was expected that he would eliminate all of his possible enemies, especially 
the children of the previous king or the grandchildren. Mephibosheth was afraid of a death sentence. And that's why the first thing David says to him is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean good for you. It's not a stretch for us to recognize that we once had a death sentence hanging over our head. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And like Mephibosheth, we had nothing to commend ourselves to God. Mephibosheth says to David, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog such as I? Now, we think of dogs in very positive terms. Some of you have dogs that are pets, and they're delightful. But back in the time of David, only the very, very wealthy had domesticated dogs. Most dogs in Israel were like wolves. They ran in wild packs, and they attacked sheep. They attacked people if people were alone. So to call himself a dead dog was to say, there's nothing good in me. And you know what? The Bible says the same about you and me. In the New Testament, which is all the good news and none of the bad news, I'm sorry, but both Testaments have both good news and bad news. Paul tells us in Romans 3 the truth about our nature apart from Christ. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. Even when we looked good on the outside before we met Christ, we were full, as Jesus says, of dead man's bones. It is grace. Pure, undeserved favor that David lavishes upon Mephibosheth and that God in Christ lavishes upon us. How does Mephibosheth respond to David's do not fear? I have chosen to do you good. He bows before the king. And the New Testament tells us that we are to do the same. In that great hymn in Philippians 2, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now that verse is often misquoted. People say, every knee shall bow, referring to Christ's second coming. But that's not what it says. It's a present participle command. Every knee should bow right now, an action that is present that continues into the future. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in hell, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. We are not only given grace, but we are adopted into God's family. 
Verse 11 says that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Another misunderstanding that many people have, and you've heard it, I'm sure, people say, we are all God's children. Now, I know what they mean, that God loves all of us, that he doesn't favor Presbyterians over Baptists or Methodists. We believe in a holy Catholic church, universal. But according to Scripture, that statement, we are all God's children, isn't true. We are all God's creation. We're created in the image of God, but we become the children of God by faith. John 1.12 says it very clearly. All who received him, Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become the children of God. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you notice the process? It's called adoption. God doesn't have any natural children or grandchildren because your parents were believers. You are automatically in the family. No, it's a process of adoption whereby we trust in Christ and God brings us into his family. And when we become children of God, we cry out to him, Abba. Many of you know that that's the Aramaic word for daddy. It describes intimacy an intimate relationship with God. We are his children. What an amazing, amazing gift. And God provides a seat at his table. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Listen to the promise of Revelation chapter 19. In heaven, the believers will cry out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, we sit at the table of the Lord every time we sit down for a meal. That's why it's significant and appropriate to always give thanks, to say grace, to acknowledge, as we prayed just a little bit ago, that he provides our daily bread. We sit at the table of the Lord when we take communion. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. His blood was shed for our forgiveness, and the symbolism is wine. Jesus said, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the table of the Lord. But we will also sit 
at the table of the Lord in heaven. There's an amazing statement in Luke chapter 22. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, You have been faithful, and I will give you a kingdom just as I have been given a kingdom, and you will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I don't know if that is meant just for the disciples or it's meant for us as well. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that in heaven, we will judge the angels. I have no idea what that means. I don't think anybody else can understand that. But what I do know and what we can rejoice and claim is this. I has not seen nor ear heard what the Lord has provided for those who love him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have given us a seat at your table. We celebrate the fellowship that we share with brothers and sisters and family whenever we eat. And Lord, we celebrate the fellowship of the church, your body, your family. Lord, it's sheer grace that you have adopted us to be your precious children. And Lord, we celebrate the fact that we have a future and a hope that is stored up for us in heaven. Lord, thank you for loving us so much. We pray in your name.